friends, how are we doing? We are going to study today my favorite chapter in the Bible. Now, if you've been here very long, you should probably laugh at that. I guess you haven't been here very long because no one laughed. But I say that all the time. And here's the reason I say that. I mean, I think I said it when we went through chapter three last week. And I, I know I said it when we looked at chapter two, that that's probably the most important, if not my favorite chapter in the scripture, because it tells you everything you need to know about Jesus. But I'll tell you why I say that. I mean, every time I read God's word, it's like having a cup of coffee with this genius friend who gives grace and glory to me and helps me and sets me on my way. And I'm like, that was the best cup of coffee I've ever had. And if I could just do that again, I mean, if I could have, you know, 30 minutes, two hours, five hours with somebody to sit and talk and learn and be sharpened, that would be the one I'd try and reproduce. And every time I dive in to God's word in that way, which I have the privilege of doing to make sure our time is meaningful right here, I have that experience. Not only take some spit bath, you know, in the scripture, or take like a Flintstone vitamin, but when you really sit down, right, now like, hey, how you doing? Good, man, good to see you. I mean, those kind of friends don't change your life. What changes your life is deep, engaging, intimate relationships, especially when that friend is a life-giving spirit and loves you. Well, that's what this book is. It is the word of God breathed, it's brought forth. God loves us, he doesn't leave us as orphans, he wants us to know his mind, and so he gives us his word. This is probably as relevant a text as the church could hear, because it deals with the number one problem, I think, that affects churches in terms of the thing they fail in, that they need to succeed in. It deals with the number one challenge facing most of America today. Let me just give you a little uh, tip into that. 18% of Americans, 42 million people, suffer from anxiety disorders, despair, and depression. And this chapter tackles that topic like no other chapter in the scripture except maybe where Jesus tried to take it on himself. So let's dive in. Are you ready? You may or may not know this, but when the Bible was written, it was written in scrolls, it was written as letters, it was written as historical narrative, it was written as prose. It did not have chapters and verses. That wasn't until somewhere along you know, maybe the 12th century or so, 13th century, the 1200s, is when chapters were introduced a little bit later in the uh, 16th century, a guy named Robert Stephanus or Etienne, depending on what he was going by at any particular time, inserted the verses. They're not inspired, they're just our best efforts. Look at the paragraphs, the ideas to break them up. So when the book was codexed, put in a book form from scrolls, we could refer to it quickly together. So we're gonna look at this letter that was written by a friend to friends who were a community of Christ followers wanting to experience everything Christ wanted for them that God preserved. And so we're gonna look at what's called chapter four, verse one, which if I was there in the 16th century, would have told Robert Stephanus to make chapter four, verse one, a part of chapter three. But he didn't ask me. And so turn with me to Philippians 4.1. This is what it says. It says, therefore, therefore, my beloved brethren, I would just say, to you, if you were here last week, and I just very quickly want to say this, in light of chapter three, what was chapter three? Chapter three was, given everything that Jesus has done for us in the past, and the opportunity that presents for us in the future, knowing the glory that waits for us, um, knowing the glory that waits for us in the future, okay? What Jesus has done in the past, the opportunity in the present, the glory that waits for us in the future, then let us, let us stand firm in the Lord. Let us respond to his finished work, let us uh, know the power of the resurrection, the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead can raise us from a life of self-infatuation and self-love and, and 
and fleeting human purposes, that we can know more of the fellowship of his suffering so we can live for the glory that he lived, we can be conformed to his death, meaning that we can humble ourselves and become bondservants the way Jesus did. In this present season, what an opportunity, and God one day will deliver us from all the troubles that are in this world and all the judgment due to us from sin. In light of that, man, let's not get distracted by dogs who bark at us and say we're crazy and we shouldn't believe these things or by the world's distractions that, that, that choke out the fruitfulness and utility that God intends for us. Let us not be those people. And so now what you're gonna see in chapter four, verses two, really down through chirp, chapter four, verse five, is he's going to address a problem that was affecting the utility and the fruitfulness of the Philippian church. And the problem was conflict. The problem was they were having trouble getting along. Jesus says that, that the way the world's gonna know that you're my disciples, that you've learned of me, that you've been brought into a relationship with God through my work on the cross, is your love for one another. A little bit later in John 17, Jesus said uh, that I pray you guys would be one, that you would be unified in spirit, intent on one purpose, bound together in love so that the world might know that I'm who I said I was. Not that you say you're my disciples, but that I'm who I said I was, which is very God of very God and am one with the Father, and I'm God who's come to earth. Jesus says all that is gonna be evidenced by our unity. And apparently, when the Philippians um, sent Epaphroditus to go see Paul, remember, um, they're right there on the very eastern tip of Europe. And Paul's over across a, a, a big landmass over there in Italy and Rome, and, um, and they sent Epaphroditus to him because they heard Paul had um, some human needs that they wanted to meet because they love him. And so when Epaphroditus shows up, he meets some of Paul's human needs, and we'll talk about that a little bit later today, but he also tells Paul what's been going on in the church. And Paul goes, man, how are my friends in Philippi? How's the church doing? And Epaphroditus said, well, remember Yodi and Syntyche? They're, they're struggling, man. They're, they're, they're at war with each other a little bit. And so Paul heard this, and his heart was broke. And so think about this. In a letter that God worked through supernaturally, that became um, the very word of God that he preserved for the future church that would read it later, uh, a note that there was a local congregation that struggled with conflict, and specifically two gals' names were, how would you like to be remembered in the history of Watermark Community Church as those gals that couldn't get along? Well, that's what God did right here. All right, so there's two gals. One's name is Euodia, which means basically fragrant. Someone say it's a good journey or a successful journey, a well-pleasing time. So you can say her name literally means fragrant aroma because that's what our life should be when we come to Christ. And then Sintiki, which literally means fortunate or lucky. So fortunate, okay, and fragrant were not getting along. And, um, and they were having a hard time living in harmony with the Lord. Now look, we're not really sure what it was they were fighting about, but we can be pretty certain it wasn't how great their salvation was. Remember back in Acts 16, we know that this church started with a bunch of women who were hanging out down there by a little river in Philippi, and uh, Lydia was a, uh, a seller of purple cloths, a fashionista. The church met in Lydia's house. These were a couple of the gals, and you need to know this about them. These were gals that at one point had shared with Paul in the struggle of the cause of the gospel. Early on, they were all about being people whose lives were changed 
that became a fragrant aroma to God in the way that they were living in holy sacrifices. These were women that were um, about essential things that now something had happened. Let me tell you why I think this is so important. I, 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 every time somebody asks us to pray, any time somebody writes down something, a little perforated section, like pray for me this way, or, or, or uh, you know, reaches out to us online about prayer, I pray, I pray for every single request that comes in. Um, I, every week, um, get summaries of how all our smaller communities are doing, okay? So at Watermark, we said we're one church with four locations, Frisco, Plano, Fort Worth, and Dallas, and uh, four campuses, actually, and thousands of locations. Watermark is made up of a bunch of little communities, a bunch of little Jesus communities, a bunch of little churches. And we want every single one of those churches to be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We want every one of them to be prevailing in advancing the mission of the gospel, to be counseling each other biblically, um, to be um, living authentically, admonishing faithfully, to be devoting daily. We want every single community of people to be thriving in the way that God wants them to thrive. I get every week an email from our team that this body um, provides for so that they can engage with every individual location, a summary of all the groups that they met with that week and where they're struggling. This week, I, I, I bet you I read no less than seven or eight churches, seven or eight smaller communities that are members of Watermark that are struggling exactly like the church at Philippi was, where they were at odds with one another. They no longer wanted to meet. They no longer wanted to seek counsel. They no longer wanted to spur each other into love and good deeds. I, I read a number of them where it wasn't just you know, fortunate and fragrant, it was Adam and Eve, couples that are members of Watermark. They were like, I'm sick and tired of this. I think I'm moving out. I'm not gonna love you the way Christ loved the church. I'm not gonna stick in for better or worse in sickness and health. I'm gonna bail. And, and you need to know something. What is gonna come out in this little section of Philippians chapter four is, hey church, that cannot be. The church has made a big deal about how we can't have same-sex marriage, and rightly so, because this book says that we shouldn't have same-sex marriage. The book has said that, that God created marriage to be a blessing between one man and one woman, but with the church, the big C church has failed on for years, for decades, and the homosexual community, the LGBTQ community has rightly criticized us as, you guys say you care about marriage, you don't care about marriage. You pick on us in the way we're perverting marriage, but the truth is, the reason so many of us feel the way we do is our homes that we grew up in had perverted marriages. That's not the only reason they would claim, but they would say a lot of us had moms and dads that went to churches, and we didn't see love between them. They had this no-fault divorce, and the church never said anything about it. You guys are a bunch of serial monogamists. You get married for six years and divorce, 16 years and divorce, 36 years and divorce. Don't tell me you care about marriage the way the Bible talks about marriage. You don't love each other the way Christ loved the church. You love until you're sick and tired of trying to love that way and then you move on. You say, this is the person that makes me happy. And I think it's a rightful criticism. Listen, I'm just gonna be very honest with you. There is never, I mean, God doesn't hate divorcees, but he hates divorce because he loves people. And divorce messes up marriages. There is never a reason as a devoted follower of Christ to say, I am no longer seeking oneness with you that I said I would love the way Christ loves. But you need to know this. If you get married, such will have trouble. If you get into a church, it's going to be difficult. My wife married a very difficult person to pursue oneness with. She did. My close friends, my community, are in community with a very difficult person to be at peace with. 
And I am so glad that they, with gentleness and humility, show forbearance to me in love and are diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in a bond of peace. The scripture says, as much as you're able, be at peace with all men. The scripture says that th this is a big deal. What you're going to see is he's going to call in the whole church to get involved. Working through conflict is an all hands on deck, job number one, highest priority event that every partner in the gospel mission ought to be partaking in. And this is something that is so relevant to us because we've got marriages in our church and saying, I think I'm done. This person's hurt me in a way I never could be hurt before. They said they love me and they gave themselves intimately to somebody else, I'm done. And I'm just gonna tell you, man, the scripture very clearly just says this, is you should never be done. Jesus is never done loving his bride. You said for better or worse, isn't this the worst? You said in sickness or health, isn't that the dishealth? And so, you know, we should just never leave our partner. Our partner might leave us. The scripture says if a partner leaves you acting in an unbelieving way, you're not bound in order to make them stay, okay? But man, the scripture then says, be single or reconciled, look for them to come home. Now look, that's a hard teaching, isn't it? That's exactly what Jesus said. Hey, not everybody can understand this. Some are made eunuchs by men, some are born eunuchs, and some are eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God, to show the love of God and the irresistible pursuit of God. Now look, it, not leaving doesn't mean that you stay in an abusive situation. There's times to separate geographically, for sure. You don't keep yourself in dangerous way. But everything you do, you say, man, Lord, what God has joined together, let no man tear apart. We've taught before what to do if you've made that mistake. God doesn't hate divorcees. He hates divorce because he knows what divorce does to kids, what divorce does to you, what divorce does to society. Watch this. Verse two, I urge. I'm gonna stop right there. That word urge is parakaleo. It means to come alongside to help or to comfort or to implore. Parakaleo is a word that Jesus used for the Holy Spirit. It's a word for God. Jesus says, I'm gonna leave you, but not as orphans, and I'm gonna send the parakalete, the parakaleo, the one who will come alongside to call you to faithfulness and maturity and godliness and fruitfulness and utility for the king. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And so what Paul is gonna say is, hey, listen, you need to have people who the Spirit of God dwells in who will come alongside of you to help you when you get in conflict, because conflict is hard. So I urge fragrant and fortunate to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, and then it says, true companion. That probably is a proper name. I think that's what it should have been. I think the word Susagos is, is it's, a, it's a proper name. I think that he's probably saying, I urge my true companion, probably the leader of the church that's there in Philippi, because it's a singular male. That's what the word uh, true companion really is translated as, is one person. I ask you to help these women who have shared in my struggle in the cause of the gospel together. Get Clement, let Clement help you. Get in there, in fact, get the whole church, get the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of the life and encourage these women to not grow weary in doing good, but to work together because the gospel is at stake. If we say that we love much because we have been forgiven much and we don't love much, then it calls to question whether or not we're forgiven. Jesus said, you're not my church if you don't love and persevere in doing good. And so Paul's saying, this is a big deal, church, and it is for us. That's why if you're not in community here, you know, if you're in community, we've got staff people that will come alongside and urge you to keep working through the conflict in your marriages, in your conflict amongst community members. Girls, girls, guys, guys, couples, couples. 
It's hard. But when we stick in there and we love and as iron sharpens iron, we become more of what Jesus went through our relationships. That's where some people just eject out. Like, man, I just want to go to church. I don't want to be the church. I don't want to be in those kind of relationships. I don't want somebody to urge me to stay in there when it gets tough. That's just saying I don't want to follow Jesus. Paul's saying this is an all hands on deck, big deal job. And so he's going to go through here and he's going to say, you know, hey, girls and guys who are going to help them and, and, and family, rejoice in the Lord. Always again, I'll say rejoice. And he's going to basically say, here's the problem. Here's what you need to tell them, that their eyes are off center. Something's gotten in the way. They're, they're putting their hope in something other than what hope should be. And remember, this is exactly what Philippians chapter three, verse one said, where he said again, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. He goes on to say, I wrote the same thing. To write the same thing to you again is no trouble for me, and it is a source of safety for you. That's why he's repeating it right here. I want you to know that the problem is that you guys have your eyes on something other than the cross and the love of God. That's why you have conflict. Let me just show you this. The half-brother of Jesus, James, when he was writing his letter to the church, let me just read it to you from James chapter four. This is what he said. He said, what's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source the pleasures that you love that wage war in your members? He goes on to say, you lust and you do not have. You want something that you think is gonna give you life that isn't life-giving, so you commit murder. Okay, now, very few of us are murdering people, but remember what Jesus says? You've heard it said you should not commit murder, but anybody who says you fool or you idiot or I don't want anything to do with you, he said, you've committed murder. James writes, you are envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. This doesn't mean ask for whatever you want and God's gonna give it to you. It means you're, you're asking for life by pleading for and prostrating yourself before things that which ultimately won't be life-giving to you. You're asking for the wrong things to give you the one thing that only God can give you. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. You adulteresses. You who make love to the world, who say the world, that, that this spouse being different is what's gonna make me happy. God says, that's not gonna make you happy. That's why it's so dangerous when people get married and they go, oh, this person's just my soulmate. This person will give my soul all its needs. No, there is not a human on earth that will meet your soul's needs. There's not a church in the world that will meet your soul's needs. There is a God and there are people that pursue him with you and extend grace and receive grace that will help your soul become what Jesus, who can meet all your soul's needs, wants it to be. James closes this, that don't be an adulteress, don't go back and love the world because you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God. You're the church, the church shouldn't have hostility towards God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And what he's basically saying in James 4, James, is what Paul's saying right here. Your eyes are not focused where they should be. And so verse five, he says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. This is Paul in the letters to the Ephesians, where he says, therefore, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called, to show um, with humility and gentleness, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of spirit in the bond of peace, for there's one God, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God who is over all and in all. Therefore, be one. Work 
through your conflict. He says, the Lord is near. What ought to be the reputation of the church, okay, is that you guys love. What ought to be the reputation of the marriages in the church is that you guys understand patience and kindness and don't act unbecomingly and aren't provoked and don't seek your own and don't take into account a wrong suffered. You bear all things, hope all things, endure all things, that the love should never fail. Again, it doesn't mean stay there and be abused. It means deal with abusive situations wisely, committedly, and you seek to bring them back to a place where being one makes some sense and you are there for reconciliation. When the church does that, and, and the love of the church is known by all blessing comes to a land. Let me just, let me just share with you a story um, that I ran into a number of years ago. I, was, uh, I think I mentioned to you another part of this time I was in, um, in Kakamega, the Western Rift Valley of Kenya. It was right after a major election, and what had happened is that there was um, a major conflict that broke out amongst the tribes. Again, racism is a problem, big time problem in Africa, even though it's all dark-skinned people. But there are, are, are the Kisi tribe, there's the Kalijin, there's the Luo, there's the Luya, uh, there's the Kikuyu, I mean, on and on and on. And, and they're very tribal. What happened in this election is certain tribes believed that um, the, 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 correct, the, the elections were rigged so that a certain tribe could continue to have power over the country. And when this happened, kind of all hell broke loose, especially in the western part of Kenya, in the Rift Valley. And there's a tribe, the Kalijins, that took advantage of this chaos, and they went, and there was a gentleman that I met at this conference that I was teaching at just two weeks later that they sent some of us in to try and bring priests, uh, peace to government leaders and, and church leaders because that's where there was all kinds of conflict. And so I'm meeting with um, uh, dozens and, and you know, over 100 of these leaders, and I'm talking about the problem that they have with one another. And there was a gentleman whose name was Nashin who came up to me. And Nashin was a member of the Kisi tribe. And what had happened was when all of this trouble broke out, he was cooking dinner with his family. And he saw a bunch of the Kalijin tribe come down with arrows and, and, and what's called pantangas, which are just machetes. Um, and he and his wife and children were eating dinner. And all of a sudden he said, run. And his wife and his daughters ran to the hills and, and into the bush. And he was concerned that they were gonna go after them and do horrible things to them. They disappeared into the night. He stayed there for just a second. He watched them steal his cows. He watched them burn his house, ransack everything. These are people he went to church with that he had served and cared for. These are people that he shared crops off his acreage with because they didn't have as much as him. He said, I used to give them tea because I had enough. And now they did all this to me. I watched them destroy all this. And he came up to me after the very first session and his exact quote was, what am I do? What am I supposed to do with these kind of people? who are so evil. He said, I'll just tell you something. If I ever get cows back, I won't let them drink out of a well that the Kalijin people eat out of. And I looked at him, this man who claimed to be a, a follower of Jesus, and I said, do you want me to tell you what Jesus wants you to do? And he goes, yeah. And so I took my Bible, and I opened it to Luke 6, and I said, Nashon, read this. And I turned to chapter 6, verse 27. I said, read it, and he took the Bible, and he read out loud, he said, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. I said, jump down to verse 35, read that. He read verse 35, it says, but love your enemies. Do good and lend, expect nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. And he went, he handed my Bible back to me. And he said, I will love them. And he turned around. I go, whoa, whoa. I go, Nashon, 
He goes, what? I said, man, let me explain this. He goes, no, you don't need to explain it to me. Jesus told me to love my enemies. He loved me. I will love my enemies. And I said, well, Nashon, let me just explain to you. Uh, in the next sessions, we're gonna talk about forgiveness, biblical forgiveness, what it is and what it isn't. That forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness doesn't mean reconciliation. Forgiveness doesn't mean letting abusive people continue to abuse you. He goes, I'm gonna love my enemies. You can teach me that, but I'm gonna love my enemies. That's what Jesus wants me to do. Now watch this, this is amazing. It just so happens that during this same time, um, there was a drought in Western Kenya that it was the latest that the early rains had ever come. There, there was no rain in the land, so they could not till the earth. They could not plant the seed. They were concerned that there was gonna be a famine that followed the drought because they couldn't um, make the ground receptive to the seed they needed to plant, and they were all lamenting that. I mean, we're months after the rain, and there was none. I later taught a session on forgiveness, and after I was done, before we broke, Nashon comes walking up, said, Todd, can I talk for a second? I said, sure. He goes, I wanna tell you something. I met with Pastor Todd, and he was teaching us on what it takes to be God's people and what my role is as God's man. He just taught on forgiveness. He told me he was gonna teach on forgiveness, and I want you to know something. I forgive the college and people. Here's what they did to me. They were abusive to my daughters and my wives. I lost them. I traveled 60 miles to find them in an in a in, internally deplaced people camp, an IDP. I didn't even know they were alive. My cows were stolen, my house was burned, and these were people who were members of my church. And I want you to know I forgive them. When that happened, there were some college and tribal members that were in there, and they got up and they came up and she said, I want you to know I've known the horrors that my people have committed, but I've never heard anybody say that they forgive them. And she started weeping. And then somebody from the Luo tribe came up, and the Luya tribe came up, and somebody from the Kikuyu tribe came up, and they all confessed their sins and forgave one another. Now here's what happened. I'm sitting there in this little room with about 150 people, and all of a sudden, in this tin roof building, I hear this, I hear And then just showers opened up, the heavens literally opened up. And I mean, I'm telling you, I got a chill up my spine, I got chilled just now when I was saying it. I was like, holy cow. Let me read to you from 2 Chronicles 7. This is when um, Solomon was dedicating the temple and it says, the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I've heard your prayer and I have chosen this place, this temple. These are my people in the place where they will make sacrifices to me. He says in verse 13, if I shut up the heavens, in other words, if there is no rain or if I bring locusts on you as a group of people and devour the land or if I send pestilence among the people and my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. I'm gonna tell you what happened. In that moment, in just the coincidence of God, when the church repented, and leaders repented, and started to love the way they said that they should love because they're God's people, I'm telling you what God did is healed their land, and rain fell. You could hear rejoicing in the church, and you could hear all around us in the villages, people started screaming because the rain came, and they had no idea. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that every time leaders in the church does everything right, that God's gonna heal the economy. I'm just saying I've seen it. And I will tell you something, if the church starts to be the place that marriages stay together, there's gonna be a, a change in marriages in our country. 
If the church starts to love each other and do what the church is supposed to do, there's gonna be a blessing that comes in our country because right now the problem in our country is not the pro-choice movement, it's not the LGBTQ community, it's that the church of Jesus Christ isn't loving and doing what the church is supposed to do. And you watch the blessing that will come on your life and this land when we start to say, we're not going anywhere. And we're gonna let the paraclete of community and the paraclete of, of the spirit of God teach us to love one another and we're gonna sharpen each other and we're gonna become more of who Jesus wants us to be and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings and our being conformed to his death is gonna cause glory to God and healing in this land and blessing in our lives and our families like nothing we've ever seen. Test it, test it. So he says, let your gentle spirit be known. Let your love, let the renown of marriages at work be the legacy of the church. Because God is near. That means he's right here ready to help. And it also means he's coming to judge men and to give them what they deserve. And you say you're his church? Be his church. Now a new section. In verses six through eight, he leaves conflict. And this is something he knows because he just said, look, you guys, the reason that you fight and have quarrels is because you, you want something that's not life-giving and it's causing despair. Now look, when I talk to our porch community and we ask them, our 20-somethings, hey, we could teach on anything. What do you want us to teach on? You would think that they would have us teach on sex and, and uh, dating and how to have successful relationships. You know what our porch community wants more than anything else? They want us to teach on anxiety and despair because it's ruining their generation. Do you know that? 18% of America, it's 42 million people, struggle with this. And I will tell you, this is the most significant passage to deal with anxiety attacks and despair. And I'm gonna say this, listen to me very closely. Our society lazily, I think, uses the phrase mental illness, okay? Uh, anxiety uh, disorders and despair and depression are very treatable. But typically what we do is we treat too many mental illnesses okay, which are really spiritual problems like brain problems, physiological problems. Hear me, not every person who struggles with depression has a spiritual problem. But I will tell you that there's a lot more things being treated like a brain problem, a physiological problem that's really a heart problem and really a, a mental problem that if we just dealt with our idolatry and our strategies and our wrong thinking, it would heal us from our anxiety and our despair a lot more than we think. There are no question certain chemical imbalances. There are some people that were born with deficiencies. And, and so please don't hear me say that there is um, always a spiritual problem to every physiological issue. That's crazy. We don't think Down syndrome is a spiritual problem. It's part of the brokenness on earth. We don't think Asperger's is a spiritual problem. It's part of the brokenness on earth. We don't think chemical imbalances in every people are because of spiritual problems, but I'm gonna tell you this, and this is a scientific fact. If you continue to live in a way that's unwise, it's going to create a physiological problem in your life eventually. And if all you do is treat it physiologically and don't treat the spiritual symptom that is the foundation of it, you'll never get well. You'll take medicines that'll make you feel better, but you're gonna be dealing with the symptoms and not the problem. So whatever the percentages of brain issues, I'm using the biblical term that the scriptures use, which is, hey, you wanna be healed? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So I'm using a mental illness here as a spiritual problem. 
I know that's not the way the world uses it, but this is what Paul is doing. He's saying, you have got a spiritual problem. Your thinking is wrong, and it's going to create in you anxiety um, and despair. You're gonna be disordered. Church, watch this. Are you ready? He says, be anxious. The word there is worry. It actually means to be, you're pulled in too many different directions. Some, some um, people who say the language say the word worry means to be pulled in a lot of different directions. Remember what Paul just said? Hey, listen, you gotta focus, rejoice in the Lord. Know his goodness, know his kindness, know that he loves you, know that he hasn't left you here as orphans. Don't be pulled in a lot of different directions, but be, be focused. Why? Because God loves you. Christmas happened. He left heaven to come to earth and took on the form of a bondservant to serve who? You. He loves you. And he wants to rescue you from sin and death. He wants to reconcile you back to God so you can have a cup of coffee with him so that you can know his mind. And he tells you his mind by telling you what's on his mind by sharing his word. And when you're attentive to God's love and the fact that he rescues you from sin and death, this God who did not stop from loving you by even sacrificing his own son, won't he also with you freely give you all things? So quit trying to appease God with your acts of righteousness. Quit trying to um, earn his favor. Quit trying to believe that he doesn't have your best interest in mind. Your God is good and he cares for you. Trust him. Don't worry. Don't think that the world is gonna offer you the peace that passes understanding because then you've got to manage the world and care for your idols and serve them and they're never going to give you what you want even when you get them. And so he says this. He says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to this God who loves you and the peace of God. This is the only place in the New Testament where the peace of God is offered to us. You want the peace of God? which surpasses all comprehension that nobody can understand, that will guard you. That's the word for a military commander that takes his post and protects you. He's gonna guard your heart and your mind in Christ. Then here's how. Now let me just say this, okay? Um, it takes as much energy to pray as it does to worry. But worry always leads to anxiety and despair. I mean, worry is believing that God is not gonna get it right. Despair is believing that God got it wrong. God doesn't get anything wrong. And God always gets everything right. There's a guy who actually did a study. He surveyed people, said, what are you worried about? And then he went back five years later and looked at them. He said 92% of the things that people worry about never happen. And the 8% that did happen, they had no control over anyway. So why worry about it? Corey Tin Boom said this. Corey Tin Boom is somebody who suffered and was persecuted by the fascist Nazis like she was a Jew, even though she wasn't, because she loved the Jews and cared for them and cared for homosexuals that were being um, you know, attacked by fascists and, and Catholics who were being attacked by fascists and Jews who were being attacked by fascists. Till the fascists said, Corrie ten Boom, into the concentration camp for you. And she learned that worry, she said, does not rob uh, tomorrow of its sorrow. It robs today of its strength. And so she says, don't worry. Worry doesn't change anything. It's why we have the serenity prayer, which says, Lord, help me accept the things I cannot change. Give me the courage to change the things I can and give me the wisdom to know the difference. Paul would say, and have the wisdom to know that God loves you, is for you. He doesn't make mistakes. This world is gonna be filled with trouble, so don't worry about it. It's why so many people who live in troubled times and people that live in terrible situations are always better off than people who worry about something terrible happening to them. Let me say that again. 
I always hear from people who go to terrible situations in third world countries where there's oppression and poverty and despair, and they go, these people have so much joy. Why? Because they don't worry about losing their house. They don't worry about the government flipping. They don't worry about their taxes being high because they don't have any money. They don't worry about losing their fortune and the stock market crashing because they don't own any stocks. And they're in a much better situation than people who have all those things and are worried they're gonna lose all those things. Worry is life-sucking. It comes from the old English word. Uh, before 900, the word for strangle, okay, in English was worryen, W-E-R-Y-E-N. That's what we used to say, you worryened that guy, you strangled him. That word to strangle became the new English word worry. When you worry, you're strangling yourself. You're choking the life out of yourself. And Paul says, quit doing that. But pray to the God who loves you. How much does God love you? Well, chapter two, he left heaven and he emptied himself and he became a child that let the people he created spit on him, mock him, beat him, and nail him to a cross so you could be reconnected to the God who is life-giving. That's how much God loves you. Focus on him. That's actually what happens now in verse eight. In verse eight, he says, finally, just closing up this section about not being futile in your worry, brethren, whatever is true and honorable and pure and right, whatever is lovely, whatever good repute, if there's anything excellent and worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Okay, so this is not, don't go see an R-rated movie because there's you know, uh, bad scenes in there that aren't true and honorable, right, and pure. This is not the verse to share with your community group when you go, you shouldn't look at porn, because it says, right? Look, it's a good idea to not look at porn. Do you know when you look at porn, it spikes despair and depression and anxiety disorders? It's a fact. Because you're trying to go somewhere to get life where life can't be found. And you hate yourself for doing it, and you hate yourself because you're not satisfied. It's like everything else. Because you're not rejoicing in the Lord, the one thing that's life-giving. But watch, what this is really, okay, by the way, if you want a verse for that, memorize Psalm 101, verse three. Psalm 101, verse three says, I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not... Uh, um, I will put no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It should not fasten its grip for me. I'm not gonna pay to go to a movie and look at things that are bad for my heart. Okay, there's your verse to put on your TV, Psalm 101, verse three. But this is a verse to remind you what to do when you're worrying. You go, what's true? What's true, I might lose my house. No, 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 you might lose your house. What's true is that God loves you. What's true, I might, I might get hungry and to die. Yeah, we know what's true is to die is to gain. Is there anything more honorable than Jesus? Is there anything more lovely than God who demonstrates his love and that while you're at sinners, he Christ died for us? Is there anything more excellent than a God who dies to redeem his creation? Is there anything more worthy of praise than Philippians chapter two, verses six through 11? Remember that, Paul says. When Jesus taught on this, he used the exact same word of anxiousness and it's, it's also translated worry. And so when Jesus teaches on this in Matthew chapter six and verse 25 says, for this reason I say to you, don't be anxious. Don't be worried about your life as to what you're gonna eat or drink or for your body as to what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? Don't worry about it. And who of you, by the way, by being worried can add a single hour to your life? the word for anxiety. Verse 28, why are you anxious about your clothing? Verse 31, don't be anxious. Don't worry then saying, what will we eat? Verse 34, don't be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow can be anxious for itself. 
And it's why in this section Jesus says, you pray for your daily bread. Right? When you worry, you're asking for God's manna that's gonna be given to you tomorrow for today. God will give you what you need today. Don't worry about tomorrow. Take care of itself. Remind yourself today of what is true. God loves you. What's honorable. Okay? Which is steadfastness in the Lord. This is Isaiah 26.3. Be steadfast, immovable. Actually, no, I take that back. It's um, um, the steadfast in mind. He keeps in perfect peace because his heart is set on him. So guys, this is no small thing right here, okay? This is Paul saying, look, it's gonna destroy you, church, if you keep looking at the fact that the economy in Philippi might flip. It's gonna destroy you, church, if you're worried about what's gonna happen to me or worried it's gonna happen to you, imprisonment and being hated. Just know this, you might get hated. But be people who live with hope. And this is why Paul says in verse nine, don't just have a good mind, but have a good practice. He says, the things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Paul's saying, this is what Jesus did. This is what I've done. And this is what the church in Philippi, it's what your church should do. Now, verse 10. Watch what Paul's gonna do here. He's gonna develop a new thought, and I think this is gonna really encourage you. He said, but I do rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were always concerned for me, but you lacked an opportunity. Just note to self, people's suffering is an opportunity for us to glorify our king. When people are suffering and they don't have physical needs, it's an opportunity for us to glorify Jesus. Paul said, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly when you guys heard I wasn't being well cared for, I was cold, I needed a coat. You sent food, you sent parchments, you sent a cloak for me. And when the church of Jesus, where God's spirit dwells, gave me, out of their abundance, things I didn't have, it made me love God. Just, just look at this with me. Jump down here to verse... Um, Verse 14, I'm gonna, I'm gonna deal with 11 through 13 in just a minute, but verse 14, he says, nevertheless, I'm glad, even though I'm okay if you didn't do that, nevertheless, you've done well to share with me in my affliction. Because you know that you've always done this. At, at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Philippi in Macedonia, no church shared with me to advance the gospel as much as you did. It was awesome. God was gonna provide for me in Thessalonica to advance the gospel one way or another, but he used you, and Paul said, it's not that I sought the gift that you gave me, I see Jesus, but I can tell you, I'm so glad for you because when you invested with Jesus in my ministry in Thessalonica, it was a profit which increased to your account. What's this mean? What Paul is saying right here is when you take out of your abundance and you go, I am God's servant, the spirit of God dwells in me, so I'm going to advance the gospel. I'm going to implore others to be about what Jesus wants. I'm going to sometimes meet physical needs in Jesus' name. That Hebrews 6.10 is true. Hebrews 6.10 says this, for God is not so unjust so as to forget the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered to and in still ministering to the saints. Paul's saying, when you did this and you cared for me as God's servant, I gave thanks to God. And do you think it makes God happy when we do things that make people love him more? Let me tell you something else that's amazing, because look at, okay guys, um, about, I don't know, six, eight weeks ago now, I was down training church leaders in El Salvador, and um, when I got done from a day of teaching and training, uh, the folks with Compassion that had pulled a number of their member churches together that care for the kids that we're, we're supporting, um, they had went and found the child that I support with my family, and they brought him to, to surprise me when I got to the hotel, and this is me meeting Alex, okay? I wish I could show you the whole thing. It only goes, 
This is about 20 seconds of it. But for five minutes, this little kid grabbed me and he wrapped his arms around me and he hugged me so tight. You know how when people hug you and they hug you for a little bit and they kind of let go, like, are we done hugging, right? He never, his biceps never relaxed, okay? He was like that for over five minutes. His neck was buried, his head was buried in my neck. I literally got to where I was trying to greet other people and I let go of him and he hung like a pendant around my neck for five minutes. He was just a little kid, right? I mean, this is the size difference in us, okay? Uh, I'll show you a picture of him standing next to me in just a moment. But this little guy, he just wouldn't let go. I finally bent down and I said, Alex, let me see your face. Let me see your face, Alex. And I got to pull him away from me. This is just a little guy, but he wouldn't let go. You know why? Because he had heard that the Lord is the shepherd and that he should not want, but he went to bed hungry. The Lord cares for him, but he didn't have education. That the Lord desires for him to be clothed and his mom, who has nine kids, you know, couldn't clothe him. That though he wants to be healthy, he didn't have doctors who took care of him. And so I, in my abundance, took 40 bucks a month and start sending it to El Salvador in the name of Jesus and write him notes and tell him, Alex, God cares for you. This is not Todd Wagner in Dallas, Texas. This is a servant of Jesus who is your shepherd, who cares for you, who's given me more than I need and I want you to know he loves you. Do you think that little boy when he lays in bed doesn't thank God for me? Do you think he doesn't pray for me that God would keep oversupplying me so I could care for him? Do you think God's not a little happy that one of his sheep that he cares for in El Salvador is being cared for in in, in an embarrassingly non-interruptive way in my life? I think so. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He said, I don't don't need the gift. I'm gonna be okay whatever you do. The gospel's gonna advance whatever you do. Alex might have died and it would have been gain. But I'm praying that while he lives, it's about Christ and I'm showing him that Christ is worth living for because he changed me and made me involve him in my life. That little boy would not let go. And I believe my God is thankful that I'm doing what what he gave me a little bit. I pray I do it more. Now watch, I'm gonna hit this hard and quick. This is probably the most misunderstood section of all of scripture. In Philippians chapter four, the little section I gleaned over, 11 through 13, this is not a verse, verse 13, that he wants quarterbacks to tattoo over their heart so that they believe they can win Heisman trophies because they can escape five-star blue-chip athletes from the Crimson Tide and scramble and throw touchdown passes, and he can do all that through Christ who strengthens him. No, even those little athletes sometimes have despair and anxiety disorders that ruin their life. This verse doesn't mean you can do things that otherwise you could not do physically, athletically, that you otherwise couldn't do unless Jesus lets you. We know that every gift comes from God. This is a verse where Paul is saying, hey, look, remember what he got? He goes, hey, thank you guys that you helped me out, but I don't speak from want, for I've learned to be content in every circumstance. How did Paul learn to be content in every circumstance? He was in every circumstance. He was hungry, we're gonna find. Uh, He lived with humble means, and he lived in prosperity. He lived while he was hungry at verse 12, and he had abundance, and he suffered need, and that God was sufficient in every one of them. And the question that begs at the end of verse 12 is, Paul, what's the secret? How can you be happy and content even when you're in prison or when you're free or when the world loves you or when the world beats you or when your life isn't going the way you want it or when the life is going exactly like you want it? The answer is Jesus. Jesus, grace is sufficient for me. 
And I love it when God meets my needs temporally in a physical way, but I know that that's not gonna make me happy because I'm gonna get hungry again. I'm gonna be cold again. I know that even if I'm cold and the way that I suffer will bring glory to God if I sing that this world isn't my home because I look for the glorious joy that's coming. What Paul's gonna say right here is I can endure all things. I can have joy in all things. I can sing through every storm because to live is Christ. The gospel will be advanced and to die is gain. Do you see a theme here? That's what's going on here in Philippians chapter four. Paul said, I've learned that God's sufficient. This is why, by the way, you don't, God's a good God, and good guys don't give you your full inheritance before it's time. It'll ruin you. We don't have health, wealth, and prosperity promised us because he's saying, I want you. This is James chapter one, which says, listen, the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance James 1, 4, have its perfect results so that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You're gonna see that God's sufficient by going through trials of sickness and trials of, of economies that flip and politics that don't work right and spouses that are crazy and community that's hard so you can see that God's sufficient. But you wanna screw up a child, you give him everything he wants early and always. You make him a little trust fund baby, a little silver spoon child. He didn't work for anything. He just gets, 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 gets. That does not make a healthy child. It's why Proverbs verse 20, uh, 21 says that an inheritance gained hurriedly in the beginning will not be a blessing in the end. And Paul's saying, God, God loves me enough to let me learn through trials his sufficiency. It's not just all glory. I'm learning the sufficiency of Christ in every circumstance. Are some of you guys learning that? Is your faith being perfected? Are you learning the sufficiency of Christ, that his grace is sufficient for your weaknesses? That's why some of you guys in terrible situations have more joy than people who are just concerned that terrible situations might happen. Let's end with this. The very end of this little chapter right now, it gets um, to Philippians chapter four, in verse 18 and following, where Paul just basically says this, man, I, I, I'm somebody that has received everything in full and I've got an abundance. Thank you that I'm supplied. I've received from Epaphroditus what you've sent. That's a fragrant aroma. It's an act of worship, an acceptable sacrifice to God. Thank you. But he said, you just need to know that my God will supply all my needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean that doesn't mean that if you want something, God's gonna give it to you. That means Paul's saying, look, I'm glad that you Philippians sent me something. I'm glad, Todd Wagner, you sent this to El Salvador for me, Alex. But at the end of the day, it's Jesus who does it. And I'm confident, even if you don't send food, that I'm gonna be okay, even if I die, because Jesus has gotten me, because he's my shepherd, I shall not want. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. God's got me. I'm grateful, Philippians, Todd, that you sent this gift, but my God's got me. I'm glad, Todd, that it was a credit to your account and a glory to God through you that you did this, but God's got me. That's what Paul's saying. This is not saying, well, God says he's gonna give me everything. I'm a member of this church. Well, you might be a member. Are you advancing the gospel because God's got everything you need to advance the gospel? Even if you're in jail, Paul, he goes, God's got what I need here. He's giving me joy. He's giving me truth. He's chaining me to a soldier. That soldier's gotta listen to me. The gospel's gonna keep living in my life as long as I'm alive, Paul said. And then he closes, now to our God and Father, be the glory forever and ever, amen. That's what my life's about. That's all I wanna do is live for God's glory, not for a blanket, not for more food, not for the world's praise. Church, greet everybody in Christ Jesus. 
The brethren who are with me, the church here, greets you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. You see that? Well, where did Caesar's household come to know faith? Well, they were chained to Paul. May the grace of God be with you in spirit. May you rejoice in the Lord always. May he meet your needs in Philippi. Your economy might flip. Your health might leave. Don't worry. Closing illustration. I went and saw the movie Free Solo this week. You guys know what that is? You may not know who Alex Honnold is. Alex Honnold is how you say his name. Um, He climbed El Capitan. It's in Yosemite. It's the largest sheer uh, granite-faced wall in the world. And um, if you want to see what it's like, I mean, here's just a scale with a bunch of things next to it, all right? There's the Eiffel Tower, which is 1,000 feet. That's the Space Needle in Seattle, which is 600 feet. The Empire State Building, 1,400 feet. Sears Tower, 1,700 feet. And this brother climbed up that wall. There are spots in that wall that he was literally, I think, 2,600 feet up that he had a thumb hold and his foot in a little quarter-sized hole, and he's got to chase that thumb out with this thumb so he could put his hand on a loaf of a rock so off that little deal he could lift this foot and karate kick over here at 3,600 feet and he free sold it without a rope. He climbed it four hours. And they looked at this brother and go, okay, you're a little bit nuts. <laughs> if you see the movie, and I recommend it, he's a lot of bit nuts. But here's what's interesting. They looked at him and they go, how is this guy able to do that? And they said it's because he can control his body and his fear specifically in a way that nobody else can. And so even if other guys are skilled climbers, they just freak out when they realize that they're going to die. And so what they did is they put him in an MRI machine. And in this MRI machine, they showed him about 200 images of just things that ought to freak you out. I mean, like literally pictures of of dead faces that are grossly disfigured. A toilet choked with feces. Um, a woman who has a big beard has to shave, okay? Um, and, and just life and death scenes. I mean, it's like, like right after this. And they showed him all of these different things and they filmed his brain and they put his brain right next to another world-class climber, actually a group of them. And this is what his brain looked like, okay? That little thing right where the crosshairs are, that is the um, amygdala, okay, which is just the word for almond. It's an almond-shaped size of your brain, okay, where a group of nuclei are involved. It's the, it's the spot in the brain that they look when they study people that when fear happens, it goes off. And so Alex's brain is on the left, and they're saying he's being triggered by these same pictures. That's that blue activity, okay? Over here, it's, it's the yellow and the orange, same pictures, but what you'll watch is where the crosshairs are, okay? The amygdala of Alex doesn't fire, He's not freaked out by these death-defying scenes. That there's something going on in his brain where he has learned through his frontal cortex to control the fear chip that allows him to do things that people go, who on earth can climb El Capitan? Who can scale this sheer granite wall that's impossible, has never been done, and will never be done again unless somebody thinks so uniquely differently that it allows them to perform in a way that just humans can't perform? What's that sound like? It sounds like what Paul's arguing that the church should be, you should be people that the world goes, who is this guy? There's actually a a verb that's been um, created. It's called hanolding, which is to stand in a high precarious place with your back to a wall looking straight into the abyss and facing fear with perfect calm. That's what Alex does. 
It's what Paul says we can do, and the world's gonna look at a group of us that are jumping up El Capitan and firing up that thing. They go, how do you guys do that? They go, because we know something in our frontal cortex that you don't know that gives us a lack of fear. That lets us not worry and be anxiety-ridden. That lets us love all people. Because Jesus has done this in our past. He's given us this opportunity in the present, and our future is secure. Let's go, church. That's Philippians. Father, thank you for this book and what you're teaching us. Thank you that through Jesus we can love one another. Thank you that through Jesus we can not be anxious. Thank you that through Jesus we can be content in every circumstance. Thank you that through Jesus everything we need to be gospel people who live for the kingdom of eternity right now will be richly supplied. Thank you, Father, that through you giving us more than we need and us sharing it for kingdom purposes, it causes our wicked selves to be a source of glory to you and a wonder to the world. I pray that we would scale the granite face of this life in such a way that the world says, what is going on in your all's brains? That you live with such love, such eternal purpose, such selflessness. It demands an explanation. And may we with gentleness and reverence tell them the story of Philippians 2, 6 through 11. May we sing songs of Christmas. May we adore you. In Jesus' name.